All right, we're underway here. Uh, this is Glenn Lowry at The Glenn Show at bloggingheads.tv. I'm proud to be able to say, uh, and also at uh, glennlowry.substack.com. I'm with Robert Wright, uh, who is the uh, one of the founders, a co-founder of the Blogging Heads Enterprise, with whom I've been working for over 14 years. It's been 14 years since I recorded my first uh, video blog here at, at uh, Blogging Heads. And uh, we're just reminiscing about all that's gone on and going to be talking a little bit about uh, where we're going from here. Uh, and so welcome, Bob. Well, thanks for having me, Glenn. Uh, you know, this is, you know, you've, you've turned this into a big platform. I'm honored to be here. Oh, well, that's kind of you to say, kind of you to say. So, old man, 14 years, 15 years, you guys well, have been doing it. Actually, blogging heads itself uh, is will be sixteen in November. The the platform itself. I I, I started with Mickey Kaus, uh, I'm, and I'm doing again a, a regular uh, weekly thing with him on Fridays, and uh, and with a, a tech guy named Greg Dingle in November of two thousand five. A long time ago. Wow, sixteen, sixteen years. So, I mean, I moved to ask with that. Uh, perspective with that length of uh, experience and whatnot, what do you make of, uh, of uh, what's going on now uh, in uh, this kind of uh, bloggy uh, space uh, that we occupy? And how do, you, uh, how do you evaluate your own contribution and, um, and where do you think things are going from here? That's an agenda for a conversation. Uh uh let's see okay so um i mean you know we are seeing uh you now see uh versions of what was once blogging heads alone in other words in 2005 there was only one split screen video conversation place online where you heard political discussions i th i think we were the first and uh you now see that everywhere but i'm i'm not under the illusion that had i you know died in the crib it wouldn't have happened i mean it was yeah. inevitable it was inevitable given the technology what uh you know i got there a little early because i found uh a workaround um to get around the bandwidth problem this was before broadband was at all pervasive you couldn't do what we're doing, actually have a conversation where you can see the person unless you went to some kind of studio or, uh, and so I still remember the morning I had had my coffee. I was thinking big thoughts. I'd been, you know, trying to think of a way to do something like this. And I, and I thought, well, you know, you could just locally have a phone conversation. You're having a phone conversation with the person. You can't see the person, but you're each recording a v video and audio file locally on your computer. And then after the conversation, you upload it and splice it together on a server. And that's what we did for several years uh, because it was really the only way to do it. And, uh, you know, you still, if you go back in the archives, you see people with holding phones up to their ears. I mean, I always tried to, you know, have like an ear, an ear plug or something and look a little, yeah. a little, a little sophisticated, but it was, it was pretty primitive. Um, and uh, so, you know, we, uh, we were there first. It was inevitable that uh, lots of people would get there eventually. I guess if there's one thing I'm proud of about what we did, it's that we immediately set about 
And there didn't seem to be quite the urgent need for this then that there is now. But we immediately set about matching up people who disagreed strongly, people from different, as we might say now, political tribes. And uh, it was, this was largely bloggers because this was, you know, the, the blogging had over the last few years become this big thing. Uh, but nobody had seen the bloggers like on TV. Nobody knew what the bloggers looked like, right? Because they weren't, they weren't getting on, on yeah. TV. And so um, we would put together uh, people who had bitterly disagreed and even said nasty things about each other but had never met. And one thing we discovered is that when people talk face to face, you know, 99 times out of 100, they have a harder time being nasty than they do when they're writing about or talking about each other. And that was an important discovery for, for us, you know. Sure. Um, and so I guess now uh, one question is, um, you know, now that everyone's taping these things, uh, how many people are going to take pains to make them cross tribal? You know, I mean, you know, you know, red, 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 blue conversations or whatever the, the you know, hawk dove, whatever, the, whatever the issue is. Um, and that's something that that doesn't necessarily happen real naturally. Um, you know, you're definitely seeing some of it, which is good. But people left to their own devices sometimes are more inclined to talk to people they they agree with. Tell me about it. I've had the echo chamber or less kindly the circle jerk criticism <laughs> uh, directed at myself as a contributor to the blogging heads platform uh, talking to john mcwater on a regular basis and he and i used to disagree more i think than we do but um have you been able to sustain the anti-tribalism ethos uh, more broadly across uh, the suite of uh programs that you that you air at blogging heads well, first of all, I want to defend you against that uh, scurrilous charge. Uh, Thank you. You, you. you would be happy, to, I think, to talk to various people you've criticized Indeed. if they were happy to, to talk to you. Um, I won't name names, but you should feel free if you want. <laughs> no, there's young. no need to do that. I, but the point is well taken. I mean, and yeah, and I remain, I remain happy, whoever might be listening whose name hasn't been named, but you know who you are. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, they're two, you know, they're, they're, they fall into two categories, the ones with three names and the ones with two names, right? Indeed. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah. so anyway, yeah, yeah. now as, as far as whether I'm upholding the tradition, you know, I'm, I, I feel I'm kind of doing my, my part. Uh, I mean, I, I certainly have conversations with people I agree with. One thing I care a lot about is foreign policy, and I'm very anti-blob, as we say, the blob the blob being the the new uh, derogatory term for the foreign policy establishment, um, and and I try to I try to platform a number of people who share that view. At the same time, I've I've you know I've over the last year I've had debates with um, you know Brett Stevens in the New York Times on foreign policy, Bob Kagan. So I try to do some of that, and then the the Friday thing I do regularly with with Mickey. You know he he voted for Trump twice. Um, I I'm happy to say that I think. Uh, as of January 6th, at least, he started having second thoughts. But in any event, he's, he is ideologically a Trumpist. And uh, um, uh, so I, that's a regular uh, conversation with somebody that, that I disagree with. That's on The Right Show is the name of my own podcast on the Blogging Heads platform. And, uh, and so I must, that's healthy. I was just going to say, 
I catch uh, the right shows uh, episodes with Mickey Kouse, not every time, but, you know, more than casually because it's entertaining, <laughs> because it's informative. You guys are interesting. Uh, but I think the chemistry is just right. I mean, uh, you seem to be friends, actually, even though uh, he is not, he's not closeted. He's kind of a flaming uh, <laughs> a flaming, a flaming, a flagrant Trumpist. Yeah. Uh, but he's good natured, and you, you seem how, somehow not to get mad at each other. I, I, I think that's got to be pretty rare in the uh, conversations between pro and anti-Trump types. Well, we've known each other a long time. We've known each other. Uh, I met him in the uh, in the early '80s. That's a, if anybody's just listening and not watching, and they have no idea how old I am, there's part of your answer. I met Mickey. Uh, in the well, no, it was it was the mid it was the mid late eighties, uh, and then we were, you were guys both, both together at the, the New, New Republic. Republic at the same time. Yep, yeah, uh, but you overlapped. met him before then. Yeah, I met him when I I was briefly the editor of something called New Republic Books, which was an imprint of Basic Books, and uh, that was really my segue to the New Republic magazine. Um, I was not cut out to be a book editor. It turns out I acquired zero books during my seven months there. Um, but Mickey's book was already under contract uh, for New Republic Books. And so I was I was his editor for a while. I went through the whole book, gave him, you know, gave him feedback, and the, but it didn't get published until I left. But then I went from there to the New Republic magazine, was very lucky to work under the great Mike Kinsley, one of the yeah. one of the great magazine uh, editors, I think, ever and, and, and yeah. the greatest uh, of his generation. Um, and it was a great place to be. New Republic in, in the late 80s. Uh, you know, it was kind of the Mike had made it kind of the political magazine in Washington. I think that's not an overstatement. And I was so proud to see my name in the New Republic. Yep, in those I remember years. it. Yeah, man. That so, was an important okay. part of your own your own ideological evolution. Which, Absolutely, which it's, it, it certainly was. Um, how'd you get along with Marty Peretz? You know. <laughs> All things considered, <laughs> well, uh, I, I I like Marty and uh, respect him. I mean, on on uh, and I'll tell you, as owners of magazines go, mm. you know, he's a very cerebral guy who takes ideas seriously and respects mm. honest debate, and will put up with pushback. We disagree very much on foreign policy. Uh, for seven months, I was actually acting editor of the magazine when Mike uh, went on sabbatical to uh, England and was working at The Economist. Um, and that was maybe the most, uh, uh, well, intermittently trying uh, part of my relationship with Marty. But, you know, he was, uh, he treated me uh, with with respect and, uh, you know, and and uh, I have I have a lot of respect for him. Well, now, if anti-tribalism was one of the uh, raisons d'etre of uh, of uh, your your initiative with uh, blogging heads, you, you you seem to have struck out. Maybe not at blogging heads, but for the journalistic enterprise altogether. Uh, you know that that sounds so quaint and and kind of idealistic. Uh, I think all the gloves are off and everybody is in their corner. They've, their camps are formed. And, and you know, uh, what a shame because uh, I, I speak of journalism uh, across the board. What a shame because one doesn't know where to find an honest broker anymore. It is a problem. I mean, it's the uh, it's kind of uh, uh, I devote a lot of thought to it 
and I've done some writing about it. Um, and I mean, my newsletter, the Non-Zero newsletter, uh, which is is also is put out by the Non-Zero Foundation, as which also is the umbrella that uh, Blogging Heads is under, um, devotes newsletter in the newsletter. I devote a fair amount of attention to this problem, and I and I plan to start devoting more soon. You know, I've written in terms of my books. I've written about evolutionary psychology. My last book was about uh, yeah, Buddhism and also mindfulness meditation, and 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 the role that mindfulness meditation can play in combating, uh, you know, what is sometimes called the psychology of tribalism, which is what I called it in the book. That's uh, why Buddhism is true. The name of the book is Why Buddhism is True. I, I apologize for the. Uh, for the, for the audacious, uh, the, the title, or, or the lacking in epistemic humility title, I guess we might say. Uh, it, it, it doesn't, I mean, first of all, I should say, I'm talking about the naturalistic part of Buddhism. I'm not talking sure. about rebirth and the, and the more kind of exotically metaphysical or, or, or traditionally religious parts, the gods and so on. I'm talking about um, why I think Buddhist philosophy and practice really adroitly uh, isolate kind of the problem with human nature and uh, and and try to do something about it and uh, and that includes as it happens uh, I think attacking um, some of the the kind of cognitive biases that constitute the psychology of tribalism I mean I mean uh, you know it's a very it's a very anti-tribal philosophy I think in practical terms and and that's the part. That's the part that I'm saying I'm arguing is is, is true. I, I I am willing to defend that uh, that that the Buddhist diagnosis of the human predicament, um, and the uh, you know including some somewhat arcane I guess uh, you could say metaphysical doctrines although not the religious ones um, and the and the and, and at least uh, some in what are in some traditions the Buddhist uh, regimen of practice. Uh, I, I'm willing to 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 defend those as as really uh, deeply valid and and very important right now. This is um, a line of thought that you've been developing consistently from non-zero uh, through the evolution of God uh, to why Buddhism is true. I can grasp uh, even without a deep immersion in uh, your canon the. Um, you know, I can grasp the as an economist, you know, somebody who knows a little something about the prisoner's dilemma and, you know, mm -hmm. about problems of non-cooperation when everybody would be better off if we could just figure out a way. But everybody wants to kind of self-aggrandize a little bit. They want to, you know, kind of do the a little bit better for themselves. And yeah, they, yeah. anyway, uh, not to wander into your subject matter, but I but I see. I mean, what I admire here is this persistent development of uh, what is a fairly compact set of ideas through uh, social science into spirituality and uh, into evolutionary biology. That's that's pretty impressive, Robert. Well, thank you. It's um, I, I I I have I, I don't know whether it's good or bad when you when you kind of are obsessed with a single worldview and are um are and are just kind of trying to illuminate different aspects of it. But I'm glad you see the continuity. It's it it, it might not be evident to everybody but but you're certainly right to focus on the non-zero sum game uh you know i mean as the as the title of the book and the newsletter suggests i think those kinds of games are important the 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 thesis of the book was that um one way to describe 
the uh, trajectory of human, uh, you could say, cultural evolution. You know, broadly speaking, if if, if cultural ev- evolution includes, um, you know, political ideas, science, religion, all all you know, the entire body of non genetically transmitted information that makes up the human heritage, right? Um, one way you could uh, describe that over the last, uh, well, one, one, one thing it has done over the last 10,000 years is move human social organization from the level of, of kind of hunter-gatherer society to uh, a global civilization. And I, we're even on the verge of a global community. And the way in the book I described, I said, you know, much of the driving force there was that technologies come along that either facilitate or otherwise encourage the playing of non-zero-sum games over larger expanses of territory and including more and more players. Like, you know, I could, a lot of information technologies going back to, you know, cuneiform and, and, and transportation technologies and so on. But anyway, to, to cut to the chase, we are now at the point where I think uh, non-zero-sum relations, that is to say, uh, you know, games with potentially win-win outcomes or lose-lose outcomes uh, encompass the whole planet. So, classic example would be, uh, well, one would be climate change. We solve the problem. Pretty much most nations are better off. We don't. They're worse off. That's non-zero. That's a non-zero-sum game. It's it's not like a tennis match where there has to be one winner and one loser. That's a zero-sum game. Uh, Nuclear war, you know, you know all this, of course, but nuclear war Yes. Um, non-zero sum. If you don't have one, you both win. If you if you have one, you both lose. And and the very essence of economics, certainly market economics, is a voluntary non-zero sum exchange, right? Indeed. And and um, so and that's an important part of the story I tell in the book. But the, but the uh, the point, you know, I, I'm saying that the point we're we are now at a point where we have a lot of non-zero sum games among nations. That, you know, the famous ones, climate change, avoid nuclear war. But I think more and more, you know, controlling bioweapons, well, controlling contagious viruses, right? Indeed. Classic non-zero-sum thing here where your fate is positively correlated with the fate of someone around the world. Every time the virus spreads anywhere, that's bad news for us here. Every time they hold it in check anywhere, that's good news for us here, right? And, And that's a... That's the very definition of a non-zero-sum game is that pe- the, the fortunes are positively correlated to at least some extent, not necessarily perfectly. There are zero-sum dimensions to the pandemic and so on. But I think the pandemic is one of many examples uh, of more and more non-zero-sum relations among the people of the world, many of them created by technologies, you know, uh, we don't need an arms race in space. We don't need an arms race in artificial intelligence. You know, there are a lot of, or, or uh, cyber war, you know, there are a lot of things that would be in our mutual interest to control. And I think to get, to control them, you're going to need a lot of policy at the international level. But but for that to even become realistically thinkable, I think you're going to have to get the psychology of tribalism under control. I mean, not just within this nation so that we can propose coherent policies that we would actually abide by right that would be nice but but the, but but the 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 kind of you might say tribal tensions that divide the nations right that that we seem to be moving from one kind of war war on terror back into a new kind of cold war and 
And, and if that is uh, too uh, riven by tension and hostility, that's going to make it very hard to solve these problems. So, um, well, I'll stop. I've been talking for a while, but, but I guess you get the picture. Well, you're interesting. Uh, I'm just sitting here thinking dilemma or tragedy, um, prisoner's dilemma or prisoner's tra tragedy. And by that, I simply mean, so the logic of the dilemma is, yeah, I, we're both better off if we cooperate than we are if we don't cooperate. But I'm even better off if you cooperate and I don't. That you know, I, and and that's a kind of inexorable lure to eschew right. uh, cooperations. And uh, there may be solutions. We may be able to find devices, uh, whether they're psychological or there there's some kind of institutional devices that mitigate uh, this thing, but. Uh, for some problems, I don't know. Maybe it's just a tragedy at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean that is the setup in the classic uh, prisoner's dilemma, which is of course only only one example of a non-zero sum game. But yeah, you imagine these two prisoners; they're doing their plea bargaining separately and can't talk to each other. And either one of them can snitch on the other. They did the crime together, right? That's the idea. And. Uh, if they if they both stay refuse to cop a plea, refuse to admit they guilt, and don't rat out the other one, then they only get one year uh, sentence. But if you rat out the other guy and he doesn't rat out you, you get no years in prison, and he gets five. Right? That's that's the setup. And I guess it, you know it's an example of uh, uh it's kind of an example of a collective action problem i guess the the um but 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 in a way it, but but to take it back to any kind of uh uh any of these international problems um yeah we're we're the us is probably well it maybe it's true of a smaller country but like certainly if you're norway and all the other nations are willing to restrict their carbon emissions to keep climate change under control and you don't you can get by with cheating. That's the best of all possible worlds. The problem solved, and you don't have to pay the price of, uh, you know, using more exotic uh, fuels or anything. Um, and and you're right that that's that's the the temptation. I mean, with with any with any of these kinds of problems, the collective action problems, there is this dimension of bargaining where there's a zero sum. There's a zero sum dimension, right? And uh, we'd all like to get a better deal, but but honestly, I'm not even sure. I feel we'd be lucky to get to the point where that was the problem, if you know what I mean. It's like, you know, we're not even discussing these things. We're not even talking about whether an arms race in space would really be a great idea for the planet. We're not we're not we're not having these conversations, and one reason is we're spending uh, so much time. Uh, well, our, our foreign policy brain power just seems to me uh, to be spent uh, doing a lot of mainly stupid stuff. You know, uh, I mean, I just uh, I just posted in my newsletter a map that I got from. Well, it's the Brown University, uh, the Cost of War Project, where you are, right? Yeah, You're I'm not familiar, familiar with, with the project, not intimately for me. I know yeah, of it. Well, they do this map of of the the war on the America's war on terrorism, and it involves 85 nations. Where we're either we're training troops or we have troops wow. or there's drone strikes or there's this or there's that. And like just to show you how clueless we are about some of these areas, only last week in Guinea, 
these troops we were training, they snuck off. I mean, our instructors were right there. Like, I, in fact, there's some evidence that they snuck off and did this while the instructors were sleeping. But they went off and staged a coup <laughs> that the U.S. Yeah. Then, then condemned, okay? We trained them and they used the skills we had given them to have a coup. And, 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 and you know, it's – I don't want to get off on the folly of the war on terror. I don't think it's been totally stupid by any means. But my, my larger point is um, – you know, we really need to focus on the on the on the problems and quit freaking out uh in counterproductive ways uh over over other problems, I think. This is a small side point, but what did you make of the um controversy about the drone strike that uh, President Biden ordered against the ISIS K uh elements in um in Bag mm -hmm. in not Baghdad in uh in 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 uh, Kabul, Kabul uh, yeah. he seen you know it, the idea was to head off a bombing at the airport, noble cause. Apparently, though, the people we killed yeah. were actually a guy who worked for an American NGO and his kid and several of his kids and nieces and nephews. Yeah, and you know that's uh, you know I, I've been saying since nine eleven, uh, I mean literally that. We should be careful about overreacting to that provocation. And, and I've been saying uh, since maybe a year after that or something that, uh, um, you know, w we have to be careful not to create, uh, in, in the course of, uh, of targeting terrorists, not to create more than there were before. B because, you know, the more... Uh, the more anti-American hatred we generate, the more we're in danger of doing the work of jihadist recruiters for them. Uh, and, um, you know, and I think that's a, that's a, a, a classic, uh, you know, that, that's a classic case. And, and, and it's cause for concern because, you know, Biden is, plans to continue to use that kind of thing in Afghanistan if necessary. And we're certainly using it in a lot of other places. Over the horizon capability. Over the horizon is, is the word term. of our... Yeah. I, just one more thing on this. Uh, it occurs to me that it might be easier to avoid the dilemmas of non-cooperation within a national community than it is within an international uh, array of nations. Um, I, I don't know what you're appealing to when when you ask for global cooperation. I, I, I can imagine appealing to patriotism um or or some sense of collective responsibility when we when we talk at the level of a nation or at the level of a of a local community or a family mm -hmm. or something like that so a, a, as you struggle to save the world uh from you know destructive uh, competition in space or elsewhere what's what's the grounds of appeal uh what's the common cultural or normative uh, commitments that you think will get people on the, you know, around the table and agreeing to, you know, forego what they might be able to take for themselves in the interest of uh, everybody doing a little bit better than et cetera. Well, I mean, first of all, the great thing about a non-zero-sum game is that you can honestly say that it is in our interest to do the thing that is good for the other guy, right? That that's that's. Uh, that that is at least I believe that to be the case. So uh, this isn't 
This isn't an argument for altruism. There are cases where I would argue for altruism on the global stage, uh, but the non-zero some problems I'm describing are not that. So first of all, you can call yourself a patriot, I think, and champion the causes I'm talking about. Um, but I think you're you're right that as a practical matter, there are still challenges to get uh, people on the international stage on the on the same page. But you know, interestingly. Because the division we see in America is reflected in other countries, what you see to some extent is kind of two transnational tribes. You have uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, progressives and centrists and, and some conservatives. So I know lots of conservatives who want to do something about climate change and, and, and some arms control problems, but you have... Uh, you, you might say that it's, it's more of a globalist versus nationalist split, right? Uh, Trump was a proud uh, nationalist who was explicitly opposed to what he called global governance. He, was ex he just didn't like the sound of it. And I think you see that in the kind of ethno-nationalist uh, movements in other countries, you know, whether Hungary or France, yeah. you see the same sort of aversion to uh, binding international agreements of most kinds. So in a way, you, you, you do, you know, if, you're, if you have my, you share my values and aspirations, you do have allies in other countries. And they, and to some extent, they are uh, facing the same opposition within their country that you're facing within yours. And this, it's a feature of globalization, I think, that, you know, it, I mean, ironic as it sounds, even nationalists have gone international, right? They are, there is an international tribe of nationalists. They're, they're in touch. They're on the same page. And, and I wrote a piece for Wired uh, a couple of years ago called Make Globalism Great Again, I think was the title they put on it. And uh, the argument was that maybe this is a, a natural stage uh, in an evolution. Maybe this is how we'll sort the problem out. There will be these, these two international tribes. Um, and they'll both uh, deserve a place at the bargaining table, and uh, and I and I and I threw out some scenarios where, uh, for example, with uh, trade policy, how you could see that playing out in this context. But in any event, I think that's uh, that's what we have is that um, I, I think that's basically the politics of of the situation. I guess looks like a really hard problem to me. I <laughs> The nationalism that you might want to decry as it impedes global cooperation could also be instrumental in the solidarity at the level of the nation state to solve problems like developing a welfare uh, system or, you know, uh, people being willing to sacrifice on behalf of national goals, not all of which are, are, are bad things, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, on the one hand, uh, the uh, populist appeal, we are Americans, let's, let's take care of our own, impedes uh, free trade uh, with China or, uh, 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 you know, non-combative reaction to, uh, to what other countries might be doing, a willingness to cooperate in, it impedes a willingness to cooperate in, on, uh, in climate change initiatives. On the other hand, uh, you know, if your cities are crumbling and uh if the people who got displaced by trade need help and if old people need health care and things like that we are willing to tax ourselves and sacrifice uh you know because we we love our country something like that 
Yeah, no, look, uh, I mean, first of all, I, I focus a lot on the problem of polarization in America, in part because I think we have to solve the problem if we're going to solve the global problems. I mean, America is the most important country in the world. And if we can't, you know, address these problems uh, coherently, um, it's going to be hard for anybody to, uh, to address them very effectively. And a hobby horse of mine has been, ever since Trump got elected, as much as I disagree with him personally, and as much as I find him, him personally an abhorrent character, I mean, to the point where I feel that uh, it was unfair to a lot of the people who voted for him that he's the guy representing the cause because because they have there are legitimate issues here that they that they want addressed and um yeah. and I've I've I, I have really I I have argued strongly that it's a big mistake for the quote what was called the resistance to caricature uh, Trump voters as yeah. a bunch of you know I mean first of all you know three of my my four siblings voted for Trump you know I'm yeah. I'm uh, uh, I, so I, I know, um, you know, <laughs> I know these people pretty well. Um, and, uh, and, and secondly, the issue you cited is a good one. Trade deals tend to be negotiated by elites, corporate interests weigh heavily. Uh, and it, it, it can happen that trade deals do not pay enough attention to working people in America. And it has happened. And, uh, and, and for that matter, look, Immigration, it's, 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 in and of itself, it's, it's a legitimate issue. No country has completely open borders. There's sure. always, there's always laws governing it. And, and you, you, and you try to enforce the laws. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with, uh, you know, most of the, the, uh, the issues that constitute the Trumpist agenda are totally legitimate issues that we can talk about and try to hash out civilly. And I think, um, and I think my my tribe, I guess the blue tribe, if you had to generalize, although I don't feel like I'm on the same page uh, with nearly everybody in 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 that tribe, but but I think my tribe uh, has to become a lot uh, a lot broader in their vision uh, and quit uh, you know quit. Well, I think both tribes have to quit taking the most extreme behavior on the other side as typical, right? It's like it's like somebody goes ballistic in a supermarket over wearing a mask and it yeah. circulates in progressive social media as if this person is typical. Well, no, if it, yeah. if this person were typical, this wouldn't be circulating. We wouldn't be, it wouldn't be news. It, it It's because, it's because almost nobody who voted for Trump does this, that it's a big deal and quit acting like it's typical. Um, so, you know, I think, uh, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of work to be done. You know, and and by both sides, I, I'm focusing on my own side because that's the, the 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 problematic psychology I see uh, firsthand in a way. Um, but I think there's work to be done on both sides, and I think psychology is teaching us more and more about the cognitive biases that that fuel uh, tribalism. And of course, you know, look disagreement and even conflict between competing ideologies can be perfectly natural and healthy. They have, you know, there are things that get hashed out, but um, the kind of irrational part of it uh, that just sends it into overdrive and keeps us from solving any issues collectively um, is the part that I think we understand better and better. 
And it's it's a matter of finding a way to make people care about trying to make a difference where they are, right? Like thinking of themselves as when they go on social media, I can make a difference, however small, I can contribute to a larger cause here by trying to not mindlessly retweet things just because they seem to confirm my side of the argument and not dismiss every piece of evidence that inconveniently doesn't fit in with my argument and not ridicule people who disagree with me and not pretend that extremists on the other side are typical and so on. I mean, it's a... Now, I, I would have thought, Bob, that the place where the rubber would meet the road on, on, on this agenda that you just sketched would be in uh, primary and secondary education where you're teaching civics to kids and, and you're trying to get them to emerge into adulthood with a with a with with more cognitive empathy and and humility and and uh you know a kind of self-awareness of the pitfalls of you know tribalism and, and all of that. And Sorry, but the last time I checked, and I don't care which side of the critical race theory debate you take, nobody was interested in that agenda. The, the, the agenda of teaching our kids to be open-minded, to, to not uh, project stereotypes on the people with whom they might have disagreements, to not demonize the other side, to be capacious in their sources of, of information and, and not you know, herd into their little enclaves. Uh, to be generous to those whom they encounter in social media and elsewhere with whom they disagree, to listen. Do we teach list? You know, I, I mean, I'm this off the top of my head. I don't have a, a whole curriculum here, but it seems to me one could easily develop a, a pedagogy uh, around your ideas. And uh, I, it, I don't think it's happening. It's probably not. I mean, I'm not super in touch with what's happening in the schools. And, and again, it's a case where you tend to hear about the worst cases, right? Uh, yeah. And so I don't, I don't pretend to. I mean, you know, to be uh, if you're plugged into one kind of social media echo chamber, you'd think that uh, it's critical race theory twenty four seven in all schools. If you're plugged into another echo chamber, you'd think it's nothing of the kind, and there's no and and there's no 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 problem with the way no, we're teaching about here. race, yeah. right? Nothing to see here. Um, I assume the truth is somewhere in between. Uh, but I, I certainly agree that, uh, you know, I, I assume that what one thing you're concerned about and that I am concerned about if it's happening is that in a way they're they are teaching these things, but asymmetrically. In other words, they're they're uh, they're warning about uh, stereotyping and various things, except except. Uh, acting as if it only happens in one uh racial direction so to speak right like yeah. like there's 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 no such thing as unfairly stereotyping a white person i'm not saying that is what they're teaching uh but uh i it would be problematic if they are it, it, you know if only because of the um you know the whole it's like the whole privilege thing is you know it's problematic uh, there is white privilege, uh, but there are also a lot of white people who, if you tell them they're privileged because they're white, they're like, um, let me show you my life, yeah. right? It's like, maybe I was, maybe I have benefited 
uh, from my race in ways I didn't understand or did. But right now, my son can't find a job and, and you know, and I've got some disease or something. You know, there, there are, um, uh, you know, the, the, most people, you know, life is hard for pretty much everyone. And if you tell people that because of the, uh, you can you can tell by looking at the color of their skin that life isn't hard for them. And, and I know that's not quite literally the message, but if you if you if if they can reasonably think that's what you're saying, you're just not going to get any pickup on whatever else you're saying. It's just not it's just not a way to reach them. And uh, yeah, particularly if you're one of the more privileged people in the polity who happens to be of color, but you'll be yeah, the one uh, who would be doing the telling. Yeah. I mean, I wrote a, uh, I wrote a piece for the, for the non-zero newsletter after the George Floyd killing, and I felt I had to be really delicate about it. Sure. Because for one thing, I am, I am the least woke member of my family. I mean, my immediate family, like wife and daughters, leaving aside those siblings who voted for Trump. And, uh, and you know, but I, I said, uh, I mean, this is a roundabout way to get back to what you're saying, but what I said was, Look, what the cop did is definitely something uh, that we we have to, you know, uh, shouldn't happen, should be punished, and so on. But there's there's another problem here is that if you if you look at George Floyd's life, and if by virtue of the circumstances of his birth, the neighborhood he was born into, and whatever else, what other whatever other factors, including white racism, whatever, if yeah. if if by the virtue of the circumstances of his birth. He was much more likely than some other Americans, including lots of white ones, to wind up in the situation he was in, which is to say, uh, you know, trying to pass off apparently counterfeit money and uh, having taken, uh, you know, some drugs that were that were dangerous, dangerous in and of their own right and having a criminal record and all that. We should look at that, too. We should talk about that uh, in addition to to. Uh, all forms of police misconduct, which we should also talk about. But, you know, it was hard to get that. It was hard to say that without getting shouted down. And I agree with you that if you look at the people who would have shouted you down of all colors, uh, they tended to be people who seemed to be doing okay, much better than George Floyd. Um, I, now, I, now, it's true that I'm saying they're the they're the people who would prominently shout you down. They're the people who I would see on Twitter with lots of followers or on cable TV. But and and I don't doubt that they would have uh, support from less uh, less prominent, less uh, uh, you know people who 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 have more to complain about. But but I think I I think we have to be uh, careful if we want to address uh, problems uh, afflicting racial minorities to make sure we're not doing things that help primarily the most vocal elite members of those minorities. And while alienating many uh, who are not in that minority, but who otherwise might be sympathetic to the general human claims that you want to make on behalf of disadvantaged people. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think you and I reacted more or less the same way to the phrase defund the police. You know, A... Uh, I mean, first of all, the people who advocate that mean they, they don't. Most of them will tell you, uh, 
Yeah, they don't mean it literally. They, they don't mean they, they mean redirect police and so on. But but right. I think one thing you and I did is recognize immediately that is one loser of a political slogan, man. For whether whether <laughs> whether you talk about most blacks or most whites or whatever, do not go around saying that if you want to win an election. Yeah, and but. yet appreciable numbers of people said it. Um, yeah, most of whom, like you and I, uh, have chosen to live in such a way that the depredations associated with criminal activity do not come uh, readily to our doorstep, and hence we we don't have uh, the need for the security that police might provide. Yeah, I don't I don't feel very threatened on a day to day basis, and and some people have much more reason to, and and I mean I'm grateful for the police, but uh, uh, some people have a, a much more immediate need to feel that way. Bob, uh, I wanted to talk about the future, uh, future of blogging heads, future of the Glenn Show, future of the relationship between blogging heads and the Glenn Show. Yep. Changes are afoot. Um, I uh, developed a presence at Patreon uh, a year or so ago. I've since moved to Substack, a newsletter. I've got people subscribing, whatnot. I love blogging heads. I do. I'm very proud to be affiliated with your enterprise and expect to continue to do so. But uh, people may be getting a little bit confused about the relationship between our, our respective initiatives. And do you, do you want to try to clarify uh, where we are and where we're going? Well, yeah. The um, So there's one uh, there's one change that's about to happen that we should talk about. But first, I mean, the relationship, I mean, broadly speaking, uh, it's analogous in a way to other situations. So I have a show, The Right Show, on the Blogging Heads platform. Uh, Arya Cohen-Wade does Culturally Determined. The DMZ, which, by the way, uh, with, with Bill Share and Matt Lewis, is a good kind of left, kind of mainstream left, mainstream right. Uh, not far left, far right. But, but a good uh, conversation that happens every week, usually Thursday. So all of these uh, people like you, we have our own podcast feed, but we're also on the Blogging Heads feed. Uh, so people can can uh, listen to your, if they want to listen to your podcast, they can subscribe to your feed, or but they'll also see it on the larger uh, Blogging Heads feed. They will, uh, they can also see it on the Blogging Heads site, or uh, if they want to watch it in video, or they can watch it on YouTube. Now, um, YouTube is where a change is going to happen, and the yep. way this started, you're you're going to have your own YouTube channel. You're you're, <clears throat> you're still going to be on the Blogging Heads audio feed. Still going to be on the Blogging Heads site. What happened was, uh, I mean, you may have had your own reasons for starting to think it made sense, but um, uh, you know, uh, we uh, talked to a, a guy who was a consultant, kind of on how to do YouTube smartly. Uh, happily, he did the work for us pro bono. He's actually a friend of uh, Nikita's, whom you know well, who who works for us and 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 uh, continues to help you. And and we should give him uh, credit, I think, for uh, oh, indeed, he, he's you know since we started the Patreon thing um, together, he's been I think uh, much more than me thinking through you know how it could work, how we could make it work for you and. And uh, and and the Substack thing, I, I think it was his idea to start a newsletter for you. And, uh, it was. This is Nikita Petrov, whom we speak of, mm -hmm. who also can be found at the Psychopolitica. This, is that a Blogging Heads uh, platform? That's his show? own. That's his own newsletter. There may be a, a collaboration uh, before long between my okay. newsletter, Non Zero, and his. But that is a uh, 
Uh, now, there uh, on his newsletter, you may find some things he's done on the on the blogging heads or Meaning of Life TV platform. That's another uh, thing under the non-zero rubric. But um, but anyway, so he had a friend who uh, I think he used to work at YouTube. But anyway, does this consulting thing, and he convinced us that uh, it would actually be good for pretty much everyone. Uh, certainly, it would be good for both my show and your show if you started your own channel. And it has to do with the way the YouTube algorithm works, and yeah. uh, and 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 he made a convincing case, uh, and uh, uh, I think I think Arya is going to do the same thing, start his own YouTube channel while still being on uh, Blindheads TV feed and site. Um, uh, I I don't know we I, I don't know yet whether whether uh, DMZ will follow suit, but but. Uh, but basically, uh, if you understand the way the algorithm work, uh, works, apparently it is, it is, it can be good for both to make, to make that separation. It makes sense. It's ba basically the idea is then you have a more coherent audience on your channel. It's like they're Glenn fans. Um, so that's going to happen. And that's not, uh, uh, you know, I mean, look, uh, six, seven years ago, we weren't on YouTube at all. Uh, so it's not like. Uh, that's ever been central to the blogging head's identity, whether or not you are on a blogging head's YouTube channel. That said, I think we've all discovered that YouTube is a, is a very important place for word to spread about yeah. your show. It, because audio podcasts do not go viral readily as audio podcasts, as readily as the video version can on YouTube. So yeah. YouTube's become an important part of the picture We've been persuaded that it makes sense uh, for you to uh, have your own channel, which God knows you deserve. I mean, you know, I should say uh, it's amazing what you've accomplished. You know, you've really uh, you've really struck a chord um, and uh, and, you know, I, I, I'd i like to uh, uh, tip my hat to myself for the occasional contribution. I still remember the video where uh, one of the first videos that went viral with you um it was i was i was taking a walk listening to the podcast it was you and john and john was complaining about ta-nehisi coast he was complaining about uh the way people assume because he's black he's a ta-nehisi coast fan right it's, it's, it's like the way people might say to you kind of mention to you you know i voted for obama glenn you know like uh right whereas they would be less inclined to mention that if they just saw the color of my skin right and yeah. uh uh, but anyway, I was taking the walk, and John says, everywhere I go in this fucking city, people come up to me, and I thought, that's a good clip. And I, and I went back and sent the email. I said, let's, let's turn this into a clip. And that, that did uh, really well. It wasn't the first or only example, uh, but, um, you know, and I, and I wasn't doing it ideologically. I, you know, I, I like Ta-Nehisi Coates. I, I don't have, I don't have a dog in this fight actually, but, but, yeah. and I, and I haven't read him closely enough to have a well-formed view. I was just thinking as like journalist, you know, who, who, who know, who kind of knows a catchy headline. And, yeah, don't uh, bury the lead. <laughs> yeah, right. Let's, let's, uh, let's cut right to this part. Um, and since then, uh, you, I, that was maybe my last actual significant contribution. And that was about five years ago. Since then. Uh, you know, you've done a, a, a lot of things, uh, you know, individual little impromptu sermons and things that have caught on in a big way. 
and you know, and I'm I'm really happy to see your show, uh, you know, as it grows in stature, uh, becoming the the place where uh, um, uh, more and more I think people want to have conversations with you. But because I think I, I think I'm seeing signs that that this is going to overcome the problem you had faced for a while, which is that the people you would like to argue with didn't want to argue with. And right. I and I think I think that's uh starting to change and and I think you're going to have more conversations with people where there will be really constructive uh friction and uh you know you've had a lot of uh uh you've had a lot of important conversations and uh you know it's a great thing to see so uh you know Bottom line, though, is that we're not having a divorce here between the Glenn Show and the Blogging Heads community. We're we're really reshuffling the YouTube affiliations in the interest of allowing our respective audiences to more easily affiliate and uh, right. so on. So people should, uh, and, and there will be other reminders of this, Glenn Show fans should subscribe to what will be the new uh, Glenn show channel and and I think as I understand you know if uh uh if our russian handler nikita if i understand his uh his instructions correctly um i think this is i think this is going to uh um this will be the first one on the glenn channel maybe on on the glenn youtube channel but 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 i i believe clips from it in advance of that will be on the blogging heads channel uh, okay, but, I, but, I haven't consulted with Nikita, so I can't confirm that. But it's, it sounds about you know. right. Since when I tried to sign on for this conversation, uh, I was asked by YouTube uh, which channel did I when I, you know, uh. when, and, and I didn't know the other channel existed. Well, uh, it's probably so coming into, has set it up. Probably coming into existence even as we speak. So, so, right. so, Glenn Show fans should subscribe to that. I encourage them to remain subscribed to Blogging Heads. You know, both because I obviously, uh, I have my own. That that's where you know DMZ is. It's where my show is, and I think we may before long uh, start uh, reviving the practice of. I mean, my own show is a place where I try to have ideological diversity, have right and left, and so on. But I think uh, we may before long revive the practice of. Uh, creating conversations uh, that aren't hosted, so to speak. We just find somebody uh, who, who holds one opinion, somebody who fiercely disagrees, put them together, let them hash it out. Uh, it, it would be a couple of months before that starts happening if it does, but I think there's a, a decent chance of that. So I'd encourage people to stay tuned to Blogging Heads, but they should absolutely um, you know, subscribe to the, the Glenn channel, which I'm, I'm sure we'll see a rapid, rapid growth in, uh, you know, subscribership uh just as you've done a lot to drive the growth in the blogging heads numbers you know you more than anyone well okay um i think we've covered a lot of ground bob uh and and i'm very happy to be uh looking forward to another 14 years of collaboration god i'll be 87 at the end of that period but uh you know Uh, god willing at your current rate i think you'll i think you'll still be extremely sharp uh, myself, I'm not so sure about, uh, but the, um, you know, who uh, we should thank quickly. Do you remember Josh Cohen brought you on blogging heads, right? I do remember Josh Cohen, a political philosopher. Uh, he teaches at the Berkeley uh, law school and is at the, uh, Apple university. Yeah, I as think a, he is. Yeah. 
professor, and he's my friend, your friend. He did uh, introduce us or introduce and, and me to to this. He was editing uh, the Boston Review, I think, and you'd written a piece for him or something. He brought you on and talked about it. So yeah, I'd given these lectures at Stanford about incarceration, and he had invited me to publish a piece in the Boston Review, drawn off of the lectures, and that was the subject of our first conversation. But Josh and I have continued to have conversations at the Glenn Show over the years. Yeah. So it's one of those little, yeah. you know, contingent, Josh. contingency plays an interesting role in life. And, uh, and I'm glad that that, I'm glad that happened. Uh, Me too. And uh, signing off, uh, Bob Wright, proprietor, CEO of uh, uh, Non-Zero Foundation and of bloggingheads.tv. Till next time. Thanks, Glenn.